0: This morning for our text. Paul writes, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And that's as far as we're going to make it this morning, just this one verse. And so let's read that once again. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. Again, together as we do this morning, we thank you for the safe travels, for those who've been away from us, and as well continue to pray for those who are away due to uh, their travels. And we pray as well, Father, for those who are providentially unable to meet with us this day, those who are recovering from surgeries, from sickness, procedures. Lord, we just pray that your grace may abound in every situation. Lord, according to your will, may all things uh, bring you glory, honor, and praise. And Father, as we've met here this day, I pray that we might have hearts that are submissive unto you to, as we've sung praise to your name, as we will now open the word of God to proclaim its truth. May you again give us understanding and discernment of your spirit. May we receive with joy and may the truth of your word take root in every heart and every life of those who will hear and those present this day. Father, we pray that our lives may be fruitful unto your glory and for your honor. We recognize that there is nothing Lord, as we have seen through this study and throughout the scriptures, there is nothing that we can do of our own doing, of our own effort, of our own ability, of our own power, Lord, to bring glory and honor unto you. It is just you working in us. And so, Lord, may we have submissive spirits, submissive hearts to you this day. And may our minds, as you have renewed us by the working of your spirit within us, giving us the mind of Christ, may we have the mind of Christ, Lord, in submission unto you. Lord, we pray this. May all be your glory and honor as your spirit would give us understanding in your word, that we might live thereby. Lord, may we walk in the power and truth of the resurrected Christ who dwells within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Last week, if you recall with me in our study of Colossians, we considered the portion of Paul's prayer, which we are still looking at uh, this transition, as we'll mention in a moment, of this prayer of Paul. ...for the Colossian believers, and in this prayer he explained the reason he prayed for them... ...which of course was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, God's wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Paul explained in verse 10, if you look back a few verses, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing... ...being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we saw last week that Paul had previously explained in verse 9, the preceding or pre- previous verse to that which we just read that there are prerequisites to walk worthy of the Lord. There are some things that must be present that are necessary if this is to be true. And we see that in verse 9 spelled out for us by the Apostle Paul. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire. And the word desire means that he would ask. It's not simply saying this is something he wanted, though that is true. He is saying this is what we ask. This is what my prayer, this is my petition before the Lord that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, God the Father, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we saw the last few weeks as we've studied through this passage up to this point, that if one is to walk worthy of the Lord, he must first be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which this literally means that he recognized God's will. There's a recognition of God's will. But we've seen that is not enough. For many people can recognize God's will even those who are believers having the Spirit of God dwelling in them, you may recognize something to be the will of God. But that does not mean that you are walking in His will, just because you know it to be His will. So recognition of God's will is important and foundational. But then second, He also if he's going to walk worthy of the Lord, there's a prerequisite that is required, and that is that he be filled with wisdom. And this is, of course, meaning to apply that knowledge. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not the unregenerate man, because he has no godly spiritual wisdom, but Christ has made wisdom unto us. And so because of this, we are to live in the truth of the knowledge of God's will. We are to apply such uh, wisdom from God in walking according to his will. And then third, another prerequisite Paul listed was that he be filled with the spiritual or be filled with spiritual understanding, which means insight to live out God's will. And that is something that will continue to happen in one's life as they are submitted to the Lord, as we walk according to the will of God, to the word of God, as we apply the uh, knowledge or the, uh, in wisdom to that which God has declared and made known. Then as well, we will begin to increase in spiritual understanding and insight to what God would have for us to do, how he would have us to walk, what it is that he does require of us in submission to him. We further examined in verse 10 last week what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. Verse 10, Paul began by stating that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. So to walk worthy of the Lord, again, does not mean that we are, are ever going to merit or deserve the grace and the mercy and the love of God which has been given to us because none of us could. As a matter of fact, Paul makes it very clear in Romans that if, we, if that which we are given is of if it's reward, because God is rewarding us for what we've done, then it's that God owes us that. It is debt, not grace. But if it's grace, it means we recognize that we could never merit or earn or deserve such, such favor and loving kindness of God and goodness of God. And so when he says that you might walk worthy of the Lord, it means to live in a worthily manner of the Lord and the provision that he has made on our behalf. So in other words, just to summarize, and it's more than this alone, but this helps us to, I think, understand what Paul, the the intent and meaning of that which Paul conveys in this verse. When he says we are to walk worthy, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. First, foundationally, we must recognize God's will, we must apply knowledge, in wisdom to that which God has revealed, and we are then to continue to grow in insight and understanding of God's will as we submit to God's will, and then we can walk worthily of the Lord. Again, not deserving the Lord, not deserving grace, but we are to live according to God's grace, according to God's mercy, according to God's love, and according to God's power, which is the resurrected and resurrection power of Christ within us, as God has provided for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what's really being stated. It's as though God is saying, okay, here's what I require, and I have provided everything necessary for you to live as I required. Live accordingly. Do as I have required. And remember, without Christ, that's absolutely impossible because man can never do that which God requires, which is holiness and righteousness, or live righteously or holy before the Lord of his own doing. It's God within us, which is Christ, God's provision of Christ within us, by which this is accomplished. And so, he is saying, live according to the grace you've been given. Let me ask you this. Just to to help maybe simplify this a little more so you understand the importance of what Paul says here and the exhortation that is given. At the moment of your salvation, of the new birth, your regeneration... Was God's grace at that moment enough to deliver you and to forgive all of your sins? Was it? If that is true, then his grace is still enough today to keep you from sin. Now That doesn't mean we don't sin. We do. We sin. But it's not a lack of God's provision is the point. Many times people want to point the finger at God, do they not? And they, oh, God, I just need your help here. Listen, and we do need God's help. There's no doubt about that. But he's provided what is necessary in Christ to live for all things pertaining to life and godliness. He states that for us in his word. And so if this is true, which it is, I'm not talking about perfection. We will never be perfect in this lifetime. That's obvious. We're not talking about living a life in which I never sin. I'm saying God has made all the provision necessary for us to walk in godliness and holiness and to be delivered out of this sin which He has delivered us from. Therefore, our sin is our fault, not God's or someone else's. And the fact of the matter is that we, if we don't blame God, we often will blame someone else. Let me, and I'm, this is very simple but very practical and true. If you are married in here today, or if you've ever been married, then you can relate to this. There are times that I may respond in a certain way to something Kelly may say or do, and I will want to say, Well, it's because you did this. No, it's because of me that I responded that way. It's not because of her. And just to be fair, that's true for YouTube, honey. You can't blame me for how you respond. <laughs> So the fact of the matter is, we respond because of us. It's not the other person. Now, they may anger us or frustrate us or upset us, but we can't blame them for our responses. But we want to. Do we not? You just need to be honest. Y'all just need to be honest. We want to blame other people for our sin. We do, for what we do or don't do. And so the fact of the matter is, but God's given us all this grace, mercy, love, and the power of the resurrected Christ dwells within us so live accordingly that's what paul is saying we considered also paul's statement concerning the results of walking worthy of the lord in verse 10 he goes on to say unto all pleasing that you might walk worthy of the lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god again i mentioned last week that spiritual fruit is not something that just happens in one's life it is by the working of the spirit of god within us as we rely upon the power of christ within us that this fruit is realized or it's 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 born in our lives in John 15, 1-5, Jesus declared that bearing spiritual fruit relies upon his life in us. Except a man abide in me and I in him, he, if a man abide in me and I in him, he will bring forth much fruit. Remember Jesus saying that to the disciples? And in verse 5, you recall with me, he says, For without me, ye can do no thing. Nothing. Galatians 5, 22-25, the apostle Paul explained that bearing spiritual fruit results from submitting to the spirit of, of God living within our lives, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit: joy, peace, on suffering, so on and so forth. But he talks about that if we are in, if we are in the Spirit, then let us walk, if the Spirit is in us, then let us walk in the Spirit. In Second Peter one two through eight, Simon Peter stated that spiritual fruit requires an increased knowledge of God in our lives. So if we're going to be fruitful and remain fruitful and continue being fruitful for the glory of God, it means that we must grow in the knowledge of the life source from which this fruit is produced, which is not you, but Christ in you. And there's an increased knowledge of God. And then finally, last week, we contemplated this thought that God's provision made for us to walk worthy of the Lord is also given to us in verse 11. He says, strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. The verb strengthen, as I said to you, literally means enable or to make strong. So what he's saying here is that God has enabled us with all might according to what? His glorious power, that resurrected power of Christ, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. So God enabled, enabled us by his glorious power to walk according to his calling and provision within our lives with steadfastness and patience while rejoicing in his provision that's been made for us to do so. So this morning, we will progress to another portion of this epistle, just one verse, verse 12, in which now, as I mentioned, Paul transitions from his prayer for the church at Colossae to his praise of the Lord Jesus Christ in his very person. Now, he first does so by giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done for the church, and then offers praise to the Lord for who he is and how he has revealed his person to the church. Now, while this portion of the letter does transition, as I mentioned, from prayer to praise, if you will, we find that it is necessary as well to consider the prayer portion as Paul transitions to this portion of praise to the Lord for the person of Christ. And to do this, we once again must go back to verse 9, which we read a moment ago, and the following verses, verses 10 and 11... Leading us up to verse 12, considering what Paul has already declared in the text. So Let's read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll move into 12. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." strengthened or enabled with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience, steadfastness, and longsuffering with joyfulness. Paul then continues, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, and verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of of sins. Now, we will not make it into verses 13 and 14 this morning. I've already told you that. But I do want us to consider those in relation to verse 12 as well. So within this morning's opening verse, verse 12 of our text, we find that Paul explains a wonderful truth, which is important for us to understand this truth in which every believer should rejoice and give praise and thanks to God. Look again at verse 12 with me. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints So Paul begins by expressing, in this transition of prayer to praise, Paul begins by expressing his thanks to the Heavenly Father. And there are a couple of questions, I think, which arise from this verse, which are important for us to consider and answer if we are to, again, understand and appreciate the truth that Paul conveys within this one verse, and as it will progress in the verses to follow. First of all is this question. For what does Paul give thanks Now, it's easy for us to look at the scripture and see where men or women or what have you give thanks or praise unto God, and we find it declared that this is what is happening. But I think it's important, especially in an address such as this to this church, an epistle to the church at Colossae, that we are mindful of the details of what is being stated. So Paul is not just generally offering thanks unto God. And by the way, we should always offer thanks and praise to the Lord in all things. But there also should be some times in which we are very specific in our praise and thanks to the Lord for specific things. And in this case, Paul is very specific. He says, giving thanks unto the Father. This is not just, again, some casual statement or introduction into something more important that he has to say. But rather he's saying, I give thanks unto God for this reason. And he followed the expression of thanks with this statement, which hath made us meet. So he's giving thanks unto God because it is God who has made us meet. And the verb phrase used hath made us meet, here's what it means. To qualify or to make sufficient. And the verb qualified is defined as having the qualities, accomplishments, etc. that fit a person for some function, for some office or the like. Now think about this for a moment. Why would Paul not offer thanks for this? We who, in contrast to the very definition of qualified, which again is to have the qualities or the accomplishments that fit a person for some function, office, or the like. Here's what I'm saying to you. We are unqualified. We are not qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We are not qualified to be partakers of God's grace, His mercy, and His love. There's nothing about us that that has, there's no quality in us, there's no accomplishment of ours that is fit or makes us fit for any function, office, or to be made a part of the family of God. Again, this all goes back to grace, which is the point. So there's nothing about us by which we can stand before God and say, hey, God, I think I'm qualified. We are disqualified by Adam and unqualified within ourselves. And so we find that this very thing of being qualified, that we are, in contrast, we are in contrast to the very definition of what it means to be qualified. We lack the qualities, we lack the accomplishments, and we are infinitely insufficient to meet the requirements of God's holiness and God's righteous standards. This is exactly what Paul conveyed in the book of Romans when he wrote this. And we know this verse, you've quoted this verse probably hundreds of times if more. But the verse says, for all, speaking of Jew and Gentile alike, that's the emphasis being made here, for all have sinned and come short. And the the, the statement, come short, it means to lack of the glory of God. So we all have sinned and we lack God's glory. Listen, we are made in the image of God. But never forget, we are a marred image of God because of sin. So we lack the glory of God. The glory that Adam and Eve were created in is not present in the human race apart from Jesus Christ. So we are not qualified. We lack everything that would be required. However, what's beautiful about this, and by the way, here's the bad news of the gospel. We do not meet the requirements. We've not accomplished what God says must be. Our lives, we do not possess the qualities of what God requires to not only increase in the knowledge of him, but to even know him. Or to be considered and brought into his family. And to be considered a part of his family. So we lack all of that. that. That's bad news. And what's worse news about that bad news is that there's nothing we can do to improve our situation. We cannot fix this problem. It's a foundational, fundamental, universal problem that we cannot fix. But here's the good news. God has made us qualified in Jesus Christ. For it is Jesus who is everything that we are not. He is qualified. He does possess all the necessary qualities. He has accomplished the Father's will, and He is infinitely all-sufficient. So everywhere that I am not, Christ is. And in Him, I am now made to be accepted In the beloved. What does that mean? It means that where I am unacceptable, God has made me accepted in Jesus Christ. As Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1. Romans 8, 1 through 4 tells us this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you something. Is there anything about you, your qualities of your life, as to where God would not pour his wrath upon you? Have you accomplished something that would avoid That you can now avoid God's wrath because of something you've done or something you've said? Are are you seeing where this is going? Paul is saying, look, we, we are absolutely insufficient here. We are not qualified and giving thanks to God because he has qualified us in Jesus Christ, the only qualified one. He has made us accepted. And by the way, notice, it doesn't say he made us acceptable. We are still unacceptable of ourselves, but he has made us accepted in Jesus. Because the Son is accepted before the Father and acceptable, more than acceptable. So Paul says in Romans 8, 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit for, and by the way, let me just clarify this again. That is a descriptive statement, not prescriptive. He's not saying, okay, you don't, you don't have condemnation if you're doing this. He's saying, no, those who are in Christ Jesus are delivered from condemnation. And this is what it looks like. They follow after the spirit, not after the flesh. That's a descriptive statement, not prescriptive. Then he says, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's the deliverance of God in this. For what, here's verse 3, here's where we're unqualified and where Christ is qualified. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, it's not saying the law did not have the power that it does. It's saying our flesh is weak in that it cannot keep maintain or do the law of God because remember the law you have to understand by definition is not a list of do's and don'ts it is God's declaration of his righteous and holy standard it says i require this and i will accept nothing less than this and here's the problem we don't like or we lack the qualities and the accomplishments we cannot do this so he goes on to say verse 3 for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Do you see what the Lord is saying here through Paul? He is saying, look, you're unqualified. You are disqualified by Adam. You're unqualified yourself. And he says, but Christ is qualified. And now you've been made qualified in Him because none of this hinges on my accomplishments or on my qualities. But all of this hinges on the qualities of Christ and His accomplishment of redemption on our behalf. It is for this reason that Paul is expressing thanks to God, our Father, for making us qualified. Not that we somehow become qualified, no, He makes us qualified in Jesus, the qualified the one in whom he is well pleased. So this brings us us to our second question, which I think is also just as important. For what has God qualified us? So here we're talking about God has made us qualified in Jesus, but for what? Look at verse 12, he goes on to say, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, he has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It's important that we consider this phrase, partakers of the inheritance. The noun partakers, it means One who shares, one who has a portion. And the noun inheritance means lot or portion. And it's also important that we consider in this statement that's made that Paul includes the definite article, the. Notice he says, the inheritance. Not a inheritance or an inheritance, but the inheritance. So from this language Paul used, we conclude that that he is thanking God for making the unqualified, that's us, qualified in Jesus Christ to be, and in doing so, now we share in the lot or the portion which God has determined to bequeath to his saints. Paul spoke to this when rehearsing the testimony of the re, of redemption to King Agrippa, as Paul explained that God had told him that he would be sent to the Gentiles for this purpose. In Acts 26, 18, concerning this account where Paul is before Agrippa, he says, that God has, has revealed this to him, that he was saving him, redeeming him, and sending him to open their eyes, the Gentiles, and to turn them from darkness to light, still the Gentiles, and from the power of Satan unto God, referring to the Gentiles, that they, the Gentiles, may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Paul further expounded upon this inheritance. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, Paul wrote, In whom, Jesus Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Here we find this inheritance again. In Jesus, we have this inheritance, only in Christ. In whom? In Jesus Christ. The depths of this inheritance is explained by Paul in his letter to the believers at Rome. In Romans eight fifteen through 18 Paul wrote, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Notice what Paul says again in verse 17, and you've heard me speak to this before in our study through Romans and other times as well. In verse 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Now again, Paul is not making a synonymous statement here. He's not saying... In a sense, it is synonymous in that if you're an heir of God, you are a joint heir of Christ. If you're a joint heir of Christ, you are an heir of God. But he's specifying the the significance of this inheritance. Because he says we are made heirs. And then he explains heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of God the preposition of is, is possessive. And that's often the case of what it is in, in of course, the, uh, in, in Greek, of course, of it would be genitive case many, most of the time, which is possessive in nature, which means it's speaking that which belongs to someone. So in that case, of the, we're heirs of God. We belong to God and we're receiving from God that which is His that He gives to us. So it's of God that we receive this from Him. But yet you also see He's, he uses a preposition with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. Not joint heirs of Christ or of God, but joint heirs with Christ. And this carries a different uh, connotation in this regard or respect in that Paul is saying, okay, we have received from God. Well, what have we received from God? Well, all good things come from God, and we are aware of that. But specifically, we receive this redemption and this salvation. We've received Jesus Christ from God, of God. The, the Son has come of God's purpose and plan, from heaven he has come down to earth, took on the form of sinful, uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, Though he's sinless, and of course died for us, right? That we might be redeemed. And so we receive all this from God or of God, but then he goes on to say we are joint heirs with Christ. And this means that we have received all the Son has received from the Father. So just as the Son, the Lord Jesus has received from the Father, we receive in like manner because of Christ, with him we receive this. It's only in him that this is received, but we are joint heirs with Christ. And he goes on to say, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And so if we are heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, suffering is going to be part of the life of the believer because we identify not only in the resurrection of Christ, but we identify in the death of Christ. We identify in the sufferings of Christ. As Paul made so clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. If you recall with me, Paul stated, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There it is. The sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Paul says we identify in all three of these, in the whole of of the work of God in Jesus Christ. And so we suffer for him that the glory will be revealed. And none of this is anything compared to what God will reveal in eternity of his glory. And we are joint heirs with Christ. We receive just as Christ has received of the Father. But that includes... The sufferings, the life, death and life, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all. It's not some or one or two. It's all. So we receive with Christ. And so again, as receiving with Christ, it's not that we can receive apart from Christ or absent of Christ, but it's in Jesus Christ and with Christ. So we, we must recognize, surely you see this truth this morning with me, that we are anything but qualified adam disqualified us from the very beginning and then we un- we're, we're unqualified ourselves in our own being in person and so we are anything but qualified but god has made us qualified hath made us meet to be partakers he hath qualified us who are unqualified we are now qualified in jesus christ all of the qualities are present not because of us but because of jesus all the accomplishments that are required are present, not because we do anything, but because of what Christ has already done. God is pleased in His Son, and hence God is pleased in His children who are in His Son. Because Jesus is qualified. He is all sufficient. For that which we were not... Listen, please, you must remember this. We all, it's good to be reminded of this truth. While, while across our country for decades now there has been this swelling tide of everyone telling you how good you are and how great you are and everything you need is just inside of you. If Jesus isn't in you, then you don't have everything you need for certain. But this mentality of and humanism and secularism that you, you are sufficient, you are good enough. No, you're not. Oh, and you know, follow your heart. You better not. And oh, you know, just look deep inside. You better be scared to do that. We should look deep inside, but we don't like what we see if we're honest. And all of this nonsense about, you know, just pick yourselves up and just look forward and do well and do good. Might we be reminded that which we were not, that which we are not, and that which we could never be has been manifested in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. For it is in Christ alone that God's righteousness, God's glory, and God's holiness is manifested and fulfilled. And it is in Jesus Christ that God has given us his righteousness, his wisdom, and redemption and sanctification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27-31, again I read to you, and this shows us how unqualified we are, and yet it reminds us that Christ is the only qualified one. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh, so that no flesh should glory in his presence, Verse 30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That are so that, according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You know what Paul is saying here? We are all unqualified. We are weak, we are we are the foolish, the despised, the things that are weak. And God has made Christ unto us. It doesn't say we get wisdom from Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, we get sanctification from Jesus. We get redemption from Jesus. We get righteousness from Jesus. Hear me, it's so much more important than that alone. It is God who has made the Father, who has made the Son unto us. He has made Jesus righteousness to us. He has made Jesus redemption to us. He has made Jesus sanctification to us. He has made Jesus' wisdom to us. In other words, listen, it's not to say we we shouldn't just say, oh, I've I've received redemption from Christ. No, we should be understanding this and declaring this truth. It is Jesus who is my redemption. It is Jesus who is my wisdom. It is Jesus who is my righteousness. It is Jesus who is my sanctification. Not just I get these things from him, but God has made him to be that unto me. Again, listen, listen, You're not enough. You never have been, you aren't now, and you never will be. But Christ is infinitely more than enough. He is the qualified one. And if we are in him, guess what? God has made us qualified in him, in his accomplishments, in his character, in his qualities, in his perfection. That's a great place to be. I've said to you for many years, there's no greater place than me than understanding that I am in Christ. No wonder Paul goes on to say, and ye are complete in him. It's no wonder that he would say such a thing in light of all that he is saying previously. Let's stand together in prayer. Father...